if you if you have a Bible with you, uh, I'm going to ask you to do I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible on your phone, you'll you'll be able to just kind of turn with us. But if you've got a hard copy, if you will, open up to Second Samuel verses or chapters eleven and twelve. That's where we're going to be here a little bit later. And either put your bulletin in there or the bookmark on your Bible or just kind of stick your finger in there. And then also flip over to Psalms 66. That's where we're going to actually begin this morning. And our message today, we're going to, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than maybe we would typically do here on a Sunday morning. Rather than taking one specific passage and really using a fine comb to work our way through that passage, we're going to take a zoomed out look at the life of David. And so we're going to look at uh, some broad pieces of David's life in an attempt to answer the question, what does it mean exactly that, that the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart? What does that mean? How, what, what is it about David's life or what is it about the way that he conducts himself or what is it about his disposition before the Lord that makes that sort of statement about him possible? And it's actually... Uh, that's actually set up in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, where Samuel, who's the priest, says to Saul, the king before David, that you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded you, for, the, for it, then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now the kingdom shall not continue. Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. That's the framing sort of verse for the beginning of David's story in Scripture. And last week, if you're reading along with us uh, through the Old Testament here, you should have read the second half of 1 Samuel, which is the beginning of David's account in Scripture. It's actually from the time he gets anointed uh, through this overlapping period that's the end of Saul being king, yet before David is actually coronated. And so what I want us to do... Right here in 1 Samuel, we're told that God's going to search out a man after his own heart in Acts in the New Testament. As, the, uh, as they're reflecting back on David's life, they describe him as having been a man after God's own heart. So we're going to answer that question. What in the world does that mean? What did it look like? And I want to begin with Psalm 66. So if you've got that open, I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, a number of Psalms are attributed to David being the author. You, you can look back up at 64, or you can look at 65. They both actually say in the inscription that this is a psalm of David, as does 68. 66 is uh, believed by most scholars to also have been written by David, and it's a recounting that David gives of the work of God on behalf of Israel and also in David's life in particular. So let me just read it to you. It says this, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let us, or let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. 
You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Psalm 66 gives a pretty good summary of what we've seen in the Old Testament up to this point. It also sets a great foundation for what we're going to talk about in the life of David this morning. David begins in verse 5, early on there, he says, come and see what God has done. He gives this general invitation. And then he begins to walk through a lot of what we've seen in the Old Testament up to this point. He talks about God's power. We saw that power on full display in the account of creation. We've seen it over and over again up to this point in Scripture. David says that the Lord's eyes are on the nations, on all of humanity, not just Israel. And that's always been God's intention. He made a promise with Abraham that Abraham's offspring would be blessed with land and that they would have a blessing and be a blessing to all the nations. God's intent, his heart, has always been for all of humanity, all the nations. And David says his eyes are on the nations. We're told that God led them, Israel, into the net, or your translation might say into prison. It reminds us of Exodus, where the Israelites are held in slavery for 400 years. We're told that he tested and tried them, as in the wilderness, while they wandered for 40 years, waiting for the Lord to bring them into their promised land. We're told that he has brought enemies over them. You think of uh, the book of Judges and all of the foreign peoples that oppress the Israelites. And yet then... David proclaims that he has brought us out to a place of abundance, and that is the promised land. And then he ends, he kind of wraps up the psalm by taking that general invitation and making it very personal. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. We're going to answer the question, what does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart? And I want to give uh, a suggestion of what that means, and then we're just going to work our way through it. It has three parts. It's that despite his humanity, David is a man who is impressed by God. And he lives a life that makes God look impressive. Despite his humanity, that's part number one. David is a man who is impressed by God. That's part number two. And then number three, he lives a life that makes God look impressive. The authors of First and Second Samuel actually go to very great lengths to display to us that David is far from perfect. They're very intentional about showing us David's failures and his humanity. And so that's the first thing I want us to look at. The first way that we see David's humanity is that he wrestles impatiently. He wrestles impatiently. Our reading from last week in the second half of 1 Samuel involves Saul chasing David in order to try to capture him or to kill him. In fact, in two separate occasions, Saul very intentionally literally tries to take David's life. That's in 1 Samuel 19 and 23. David, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. He gets two opportunities to take Saul's life, but he refuses to do so. One of them happens in 1 Samuel 24, 
Saul is in a cave. David and some of his men are further back in the cave. And Saul comes in and we're told that he's relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom. And David, very quietly, creeps all the way up to Saul and cuts off a corner of his robe. As if to say, I was this close to you. You've tried to take my life multiple times. I got this close and you didn't know I was there. And I could have done it. And what's actually remarkable, if you read that account last week, is that David actually ends up weeping over the fact that he did this to the Lord's anointed. He didn't harm him. He just cut off a chunk of his robe, and it brings David to this place of sorrow that he would act in such a way on the individual that God had anointed king. And then there's another instance in 1 Samuel chapter 26 where Saul's sleeping in the midst of his men, and his spear is there in the ground, and one of David's men comes to him and says, he's unprotected. So they, they go kind of crawling over there. And instead of doing anything to Saul, David just takes the spear. And then he, they walk away and he calls back out and he says, I got this close to you again. And without you knowing it, I took the spear out of the ground. And rather than plunging it into you and ending your life like you probably would have done to me, I spared you. And in both instances, he actually uses the same phrase when he talks about why he would not actually kill Saul. He says, far be it from me to lift my hand or to place a hand upon the Lord's anointed. What's interesting about David's life is that we get parallel accounts of it. We get a narrator's version in 1 and 2 Samuel. We get David's own version in the Psalms. And so in 1 and 2 Samuel, it looks like David is just this amazingly faithful. He's going to wait as long as the Lord wants him to in order to become king. He's got no trouble with that. Saul has been anointed, and until Saul dies, David's just going to patiently wait, even though he's kind of being chased around this mountain for like chapters on end in 1 Samuel. But then you flip over to Psalms, and you see that David wrestles in this waiting period. Over the course of this morning, I want to give you a few psalms that you can read along with some of the readings this week. The first two are Psalm 13 and Psalm 27. Both of them deal with this issue of David's flesh, how impatiently he kind of wrestles with this period of his life. In Psalm 13, David literally cries out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, he says. Psalm 27 recounts it this way. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face, and my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. What David offers us is both this beautiful shadow of Jesus, which we talked about last week, but he also offers us this incredible picture of what it means to be a person of faith. Because what we see in the life of David is the parallel track of faith and flesh, of a desire to be faithful, yet a wrestling with the reality that he's human, and he's sinful, and he's broken. I think all of us can attest to times in our life where we felt like the Lord was doing something 
and we had faith and we had hope and we had trust in that thing, but man, it was just taking too long. And so at the very same time that we're saying, God, I believe that you're going to do this or that you can do this or that you're moving in this way in my life, the very next thought would be, why in the world is it taking so long? Maybe you're single and you're waiting for a spouse and you feel like, God, I know that marriage is a good thing and it's something that you ordained and that you smiled upon, but this is not happening yet. Or maybe you are married and you're trying to have children and you really want children and it's just not happening as quickly as you would like it to. It's in those moments where we've got this faith and hope that the Lord can do that thing in our lives and yet at the same time, we just wrestle with the reality that we want him to do it faster. How long, O Lord, will you just forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? picture of David's humanity here and that he wrestles impatiently. And the next is that he speaks harshly. In 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, there are two accounts where uh, David snaps at someone and you kind of see his flesh on full display. We all know what it's like to have our emotions get the best of us and to speak very harshly. Typically, we do that to a person that is very close to us or that we love the most. If you're married, you understand how much you love your spouse, and yet that sometimes when emotions get high, they catch the brunt of your harsh words. We go back to them, and we have to end up apologizing, or we have to end up repenting and asking and seeking their forgiveness. David is not any different. David sins greatly. If you're opened up, or if you've got your bulletin or your bookmark there in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, that's where I want us to flip now. Last week we talked about David and Goliath, which is probably the most famous incident in David's life. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 tells the story of the most infamous incident in David's life, which is the account of David and Bathsheba and the subsequent murdering of her husband Uriah. One of the things I want to encourage you to do as we continue to read Scripture together, as we work our way through the Old Testament, is to, while you're focusing on the passage that you're reading on any given day, to hold the rest of Scripture in your mind, the rest of the story of the Bible in your mind, and allow it to remind you of itself. There's an incredible parallel here in what happens with David and Bathsheba to exactly what we saw in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And so I want to read to you uh, 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 5, and then we're going to I'm going to read you something from Genesis chapter 3, but we're told this about David and Bathsheba, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Listen to these words from Genesis 3, verse 6. So when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Let me reread 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw 
from the roof, a woman, or from the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Adam and Eve in the garden, they saw that the fruit was good. There was a delight to the eyes, and it was capable to make one wise. And so they took of it, and they ate. In 2 Samuel 11, we're told that David saw a woman bathing, and that she was very beautiful, so he took her and then lay with her. There's a pattern to sin. And multiple times throughout Scripture, here and in Genesis chapter 3, but in other places, we see the same pattern play out. But the situation doesn't end there for David. In fact, in order to cover up what he's done and the fact that Bathsheba is pregnant, there's this interaction with her husband named Uriah that ultimately ends up with David putting forth uh, the means by which Uriah is going to be killed. If the author of First and Second Samuel had wanted David to come across as a perfect individual, he could have left some things out. He could have left out harsh words. He could have left out this particular incident. And maybe history just would have forgotten it. But they're going to great lengths to display that though David is an admirable model for us, he is not the perfect example. One other aspect of David's humanity that I think is worth noting is that he weeps bitterly over the consequences of his sin. Look over in chapter 12. I'm going to start kind of the second half of verse 15. David has been confronted by a man named Nathan. He's been kind of called to the table for a sin. He's repented, and then this happens. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David weeps. He mourns bitterly over the consequences of his sin. Even when we understand that our sinful acts have consequences, They are very hard to deal with. In fact, in this particular instance, we're told that in response to David's adultery and the subsequent killing of Uriah, that the Lord afflicted the child with an illness. That there's a direct consequence on this child because of David's actions. There's a direct judgment upon David for his sin. Now, praise the Lord that we live in a time in which all of God's wrath towards sin has been poured out on Jesus Christ in full, on the cross. But there are consequences built into our world for the times that we sin. They happen. You can probably name them in your own life. As the pastor of this church, I've sat with individuals who weep bitterly over the consequences of their sin. Even when we understand that it's our own brokenness that has brought that upon us. They're hard to wrestle with. David is human. First and Second Samuel make that abundantly clear. But he's also an individual who is impressed by God. And so I want to give you a few of the instances that we see this. Not all of them. In fact, in your reading, you'll see it over and over again. That David has this huge, grand, glorious view of who God is and the way that God has acted in his life and in the life of the Israelite people. And one of them is that he waits patiently. Now you say to yourself, Tim, you just told us that he wrestles impatiently. Yeah, that's the back and forth of David's life. That's the back and forth of the life of a believer, oftentimes. 
that we do have faith and we're willing to wait and we want to be patient. We want to see the Lord work. But at the same time, we've got this flesh that wants God to act on our schedule and according to our desires. And David is no different. David refuses to kill Saul and it's this great picture of his willingness to wait on the Lord in the midst of his own wrestling. I actually want to go back to Psalms 13 and 27 and just read to you how they end. After crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David ends Psalm 13 by saying, but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Psalm 27 ends this way. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Only a person who understands the goodness of God and trusts in the working of God can wait patiently for Him. David has seen the work of the Lord. He's impressed by it. It's made an impression upon his heart and upon his life, and therefore he's willing to wait for the Lord to work on his behalf. And the hard, extremely difficult yet hopeful reality for us today is that there is no guarantee in Scripture that the wrongs that happen in our life are going to be made right in our life. There's no promise of that. There could be times where someone wrongs you or something is done that has a horribly negative consequence in your life. And Scripture does not say that two weeks from now that's all going to be made better or that if you do A, B, C, and D, God's going to put that thing right. But it does give us the guarantee that because of faith in Jesus Christ, we can hope in a day when we will spend eternity with him in a place where there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain and where all wrongs have been ultimately made right and justice has finally come. And on this side of eternity, our hope and our patient waiting is for that day. First Peter says that we have this inheritance that's indestructible and is waiting for us if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We can wait patiently, as David did. David also worships the Lord passionately. First, our second Samuel chapter 6 is this accounting of the Ark of the Covenant being brought back into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God in the Old Testament at this time. And the Philistines had stolen it after a battle, and it wreaks havoc on these Philistine towns. And so they finally get to the point where they want no more of it, so they hitch it to the back of a couple of oxen and just point the oxen in the direction of Israel and like wish them well and just hope the oxen go in the right direction. And we're told that the oxen go up lowing all the way, and they arrive in Israel, and they stop over in a town for a little while. And then they're brought, the ark is brought into Jerusalem. And David we're told, is out in the streets leading the worship in a linen ephod, which is essentially his underwear. In 2 Samuel 6, 16, we're told that David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. And it gives us this incredibly beautiful picture that passionate worship is for the Lord only. He gets ridiculed by some members of Saul's family and insulted. And he utters what is possibly one of his most famous lines. He said, I will become even more undignified than this before the Lord my God. Because he understands that worship is for God and God only. And so he worships passionately in that way. It's not about the people around him. In the same way that today, our worship is not about the people around us. It's not about the song that's playing at any given moment on a Sunday morning. In fact, it's not tied to music necessarily at all. Our worship is a passionate response to understanding what God has done for us. Understanding who God is. 
Jot down Psalm 103. When you do your reading this week and you read 2 Samuel chapter 6, flip over to Psalm 103 and read David's heart to worship the Lord. He begins the psalm by saying, forget not his benefits, the Lord's benefits. And then he lists them off. Listen to this. David says that God forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies. He says that God's works are righteous and just, that God is merciful and gracious, that he does not keep his anger forever nor deal with us according to our sins. He says that God's love is steadfast and that he shows compassion to those who love and fear him. Here's what blows my mind. Those are the words written by a man who has not seen Jesus on the cross. Today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, how much more can you testify to the ultimate picture of God's forgiveness and healing and redemption and crowning and satisfying? If you've seen the work of Christ on your behalf, how much more can you testify that his works are righteous and just, that he's merciful and gracious, that he doesn't keep his anger forever, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins? You've been given the ultimate demonstration of his steadfast love and his compassion to those who love and fear him. And so we can worship passionately. David listens to the Lord intently. He gets coronated as king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in verse 10, we're told that David became greater and greater for the Lord was with him. And David and Saul at this point go two very separate directions. After Saul was anointed and then coronated as king, he kind of starts to believe the myth of his own life. He starts to buy into his own legend, if you will. David goes the absolute other direction. I recently read a biography about George Washington. And George Washington's biographer said that as George Washington went on in his presidency and in his political career, he became increasingly aloof and challenging in social situations. And part of the reason why was because he started to believe in the myth of George Washington. And so it was difficult for him to interact with anybody that he viewed as being below him. Saul has a similar struggle and it causes him to just blow through some of the boundaries that the Lord places in his life. David, on the other hand, we're told, is obedient. 2 Samuel 5.25, David did as the Lord commanded him. You'll see that over and over again throughout 2 Samuel. And then the last one I want to point out is that David repents genuinely before the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is an amazing outside narrator's picture of that repentance, but we get an interior view as well in Psalm 51, so jot that down. When you read 2 Samuel 12 this week, also read Psalm 51. It's this incredible picture of what a repentant heart looks like before the Lord. And ultimately, what it displays is that David understands who God is, that he's been moved by the person and work of the Lord in his life, and therefore understands that his sin is against God and against God alone, and that therefore his repentance is due to God and to God alone. The same should be true for us. That our, in our repentance, we display an understanding of who God is and his work to save us through Jesus Christ. And so we repent one time initially, when we see Jesus Christ, have an understanding of His forgiveness for our, His uh, forgiveness of sin and His work on our behalf. And by placing our faith in Him, we turn from our sin and we walk in obedience to Him. But we also repent continually. When sin pops up in the life of a believer, we should always rush back 
to an attitude and a posture of repentance. Despite his humanity, David is a man who throughout his life displays that he's got this huge view of who God is, that he's impressed by the work of the Lord on his behalf. And then he lives this life that makes God look very impressive in both his humanity and in his faith, in his wrestling with his flesh and in his faithful walk before the Lord. David makes God look glorious to the people around him. He also makes God look glorious to us today as we read about him. When David defeats Goliath, he makes the statement that it is the Lord that has delivered Israel that day. When the ark returns, David makes sure that Israel knows that the presence of God has come back to be among his people. When David sins and repents, he understands, he cries out that his repentance is to God and to God alone. And as impressive as David's life makes God look, it is but a dim shadow of how impressive Jesus Christ makes God look. David understood that God had made this promise to the Israelite people that he was going to bless them and give them land and be, that through them they were going to become a blessing to all nations. He knew that that was the heart of God and so David lives a life that's after the very heart of the Lord. We have seen God's very heart for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to look forward to it expectantly. We can look back upon it factually that Jesus Christ lived and died in our place. My question this morning for you is, has that made an impression upon you? Maybe for the very first time, have you seen the person of Jesus Christ and placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sin? That is step number one. And then my second question is, if you have seen the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and you've placed your faith in him, are you allowing yourself to be continually impressed by that work? It's not just that one time at camp when I was young, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, or that happened on one particular Sunday morning and I understood my sin and I put my faith in Jesus. No, are you daily reminding yourself of the Lord's work on your behalf and allowing your heart to just be overwhelmed with who God is and what he's done for you? If so, we should allow ourselves to be empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that our lives leave a picture of the glory of the gospel to the world around us. That our lives become these streams by which, like a conduit to God's greatness and glory, so that other people might be impressed by the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to lead a life that's after the very heart of God. That despite our humanity, we see the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we live lives that make him look glorious. That we would be impressed by God and then live in such a way as to make him impressive. We're going to end our time in worship this morning. I'm going to have the team come back up. And I want to encourage you to both sing with us, certainly. But I also want to encourage you to reflect on two questions. The first is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And if the answer to that is no, I want to invite you. There are going to be some people over here that would love to pray with you or talk with you or answer any questions for you this morning. If you've not seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ, or maybe you're seeing it for the very first time this morning, would you come and talk to us so that we could pray with you? The second is this, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, are you allowing yourself to be continually overwhelmed by his goodness to you through Jesus Christ? Are you submitting yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit so that God might work through you to make himself look glorious to the people around you? Let's reflect on those two things while we sing about the gospel. Stand up.